every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's open up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. We are continuing our series on the first letter from the Apostle John, and if this is your very first time opening up a Bible, there should be a hard black, a black hardcover Bible underneath the seat in front of you, and the page number is 1082. One thousand eighty-two. Here then, the words of our living God, the words that never return void, the most important words, because these are the words that cause faith to rise. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar. And His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of Christ dwell richly among his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would feed your flock by your glory revealed in scripture. We pray that you would speak to us generally and specifically as we seek to tremble at your word. Convict us of our sins and help us to think about the coming judgment and help us to think about loveliness and the beauty and the glories of Christ. May our love for you and love for your people increase in all knowledge and discernment. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I started a new series from the first letter from the Apostle John. And to recap, the main purpose of this letter that we're going to be camping in for maybe a year or two, depending on how much I preach, is not to deviate from the eternal life that we received. The recipients of this letter are Christians. They know that they're Christians, but they're, they've begun to doubt their eternal life that they have with Christ. So the Apostle John is writing, and his purpose is clear from chapter 5. In one of the verses, it says that he is writing to reassure them that they have eternal life in Christ. And this letter details 
characteristics of those who are in Christ, characteristics, attributes of those who have been saved in Christ, who can be assured of their eternal life. Last month, I preached from verses 1 through 4 from the first chapter of 1 John. And it was concerning a call that we received, that is, to pay attention. It's so easy to lose attention, right? But God called us, and God is now continuing to call us, to pay attention to what? To the eternal word of life. We discovered the who and the why. The who is the word of life, that is the revealed deity, and we have eyewitnesses. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, revealed to his people. We have faithful eyewitnesses such as the Apostle John, and that God was revealed 2,000 years ago. And then we also answer the question of why. Why should we pay attention to the word of life? First, to join the ongoing fellowship between the Father and the Son, and His people, and the Spirit. And lastly, to complete the joy of others. Today, we're camping in from verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. Of Jesus, who is called the Word of Life, came with a message. Look down with me. To verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, and that him is Jesus, and now is now Apostle John is declaring that message to you, the recipients. What is the message? God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Let's stop there. The message is God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Let's think about the phrase, God is light. There might be maybe two meanings to the phrase God is light. First, God as the source of life. Second, God's holiness. Let's first unpack God as the source of life. In the beginning, when we looked at when we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he spoke things into existence. God said, let there be light. Yes. And light began to exist. Light is correlated with life. Light represents the source of life. And that seemed to best fit with the biblical data. In John, the gospel account of John, chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, you don't have to turn there, it reads, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So, life originates from, or life originates from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, there is only life in the Godhead and no death at all. So God is light can mean God as the source of life. We're trying to unpack the phrase, God is light. First was God as the source of life. Second is God's holiness. God is light can also point to God's holiness. There are phrases that we're familiar with. Walk in the light rather than in darkness. Walk in holiness rather than in sin. So we can safely assume 
and conclude that God is holy, blameless, only good, perfectly righteous, no hint of sin existing with him, no darkness. Common Greek mythology give their Greek gods a human-like finiteness, such as they don't know all things, they're not omnipotent, neither are they um, omnipresent nor infinite, but God of the Bible, the only true God, is omniscient. He knows all things. He's not surprised by anything that we do because he knows all things from the beginning to the end. Not only is he omniscient, he's also omnipotent. What he wants, what he desires, he accomplishes. And he is infinite. He has no beginning, he has no end. Nothing escapes his plan. God is holy. And his holiness and life is what Jesus proclaimed. And that message, saints, is bad news for us. That God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him is a bad, horrifying news for us because we are dark. There is darkness in us. We are unfit for fellowship with God because of darkness. And John seems to imply and pose the question of if God is light and there is no absolutely darkness in Him and we have some form of sin and darkness, how can we have fellowship with Him? He poses or implies that question in verse 5. The main goal of today's text, if you're taking note, is this. Examine yourself. Examine yourself so that you may enjoy fellowship with God. Three things to examine. First, examine your walk. Second, examine your claims, what you say. Third, examine your view, which is your sight. So examine your walk is from verses six through seven. Examine your actions or walk. Second is examine your claims, which is verses 8 through 10, what you say. Third, examine your view, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Look down with me to verse 6. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. All the verses 6 through 10, if you pay close attention, starts with the word if, and then there's then. So these are all if-then statements. John is giving hypothetical situations to make conclusions about their fellowship with God. When we looked at verse 6, one group of people, Christians, are stating that they have fellowship with God, but they are walking in darkness. And if that's the case, then they are lying. If you are claiming yourself to be a Christian, but you are in continual patterns of unrepentant sin, you are lying and you are not doing or practicing the truth. You may know the truth, but you are not doing the truth. 
which is out of step with your profession of faith. Saints, there are, there are millions and millions of people who are unrepentant. But there are, there's a different category of people who's claiming themselves to be Christians, who follow God's way, who follows Christ, but their profession is not matching their practice. And John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is declaring that person to be a liar. He's calling them hypocrites. It's one thing to not confess Christ as Lord. It's another thing when you confess Christ's Lordship, but your life isn't characterized by that bold and all-encompassing statement. And when John calls you a liar, he's declaring that your profession is objectively false. That is, you don't actually have fellowship with God. And that actually, brothers and sisters, is not a new category. That category also existed in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. If you're using the hard black cover Bible, that should be in page 672. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, I'll read for us. We're talking about the category of people confessing that they are believing in Christ or they're worshiping the Lord, but their profession isn't matching with their practice. Verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. Stop there. So Prophet Jeremiah is commanded by God to stand outside the temple gate where people come to lay their offerings and sacrifices to worship the Lord. And he's commanded to not only stand at the gate, but to say something to the people who's coming to worship him. What is he commanded? What is Prophet Jeremiah commanded from God to say to the people of God who's coming to worship him? Verse 3. This is what the Lord of Armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident, resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I, I will allow you to live in this place. The land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder? Commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, 
We are rescued. So we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Saints, the words that I just read are sobering words. These people sincerely believe that they came to worship the Lord, just as you walked after you walked into those doors, coming here, sitting down to worship the Lord. That's what people of God were doing in the Old Testament, going to the temple to worship the Lord, offer sacrifices just as God commanded them for the sake of their sin being atoned for. But God is rebuking them at the entrance of that church, telling them, get rid of these worship services. Close down this church. Stop singing songs and praying to me. God tells them, because these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Saints, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And we can't fake it till we make it. The Lord, the Lord sees you through and through. It's a child's play for you to think that you can get away with your fake profession that lack genuine practice. To the saints of Bethany Baptist Church, to the 149 saints of Bethany Baptist Church, we all have publicly declared that we too have fellowship with God. And by you joining this church, this church has corporately declared, yes, that profession that you've made individually is true and valid. You do have fellowship with God. The public declaration that you've made stating you have fellowship with God has been publicly affirmed by our church by voting to affirm your profession. We had members meeting about three or four weeks ago voting um, our newest member in, which is true. By us voting her in, pending baptism, we were stating, she is saying she has fellowship with God, and we, as the corporate body of Christ, is also saying, yes, she has fellowship with God. Profession and practice are matching. As a church, we're not only called to protect each other, but as a church, we continue to weigh the validity of one's claim. <laughs> the bold claim that you made that you have fellowship with God. In a sense, when a church member is excommunicated, we are publicly declaring that their profession and their faith or their profession and their practice are not lining up. That whether intentional or unintentional, they are lying and are not practicing the truth. Members of Bethany Baptist Church, may I remind you of your role, that you are not only your brother's keeper, but you are an earthly assessor, judge, evaluator, examiner of other members' profession and practice. 
you might have heard, judge not, lest you be judged. I'm telling you, judge. Judge their profession and their practice. That is our job. So, if a member comes up to you and asks a personal question that seems invasive, she is doing her job. <clears throat> Welcome it. Oh, maybe that sister is lacking tactfulness. Maybe lacking wisdom. Maybe lacking caution. Teach, correct, encourage, rebuke. If she is sinning against you, but don't be surprised by one of your judges' questions or assessors' questions. So, profession must match practice. Your faith matching your life. Your words matching your actions. Lest you be a hypocrite. Lie. Look down with me to verse 7. Verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. Now in a different version, we're reading from the CSV, but if you're reading from NASV or ESV, the beginning of verse one, seven starts with the word but, or yet. So verse seven is a contrary statement to verse six. Verse six says, if you say you have fellowship with God, yet you walk in darkness, you are lying. But, in verse 7, if you walk in the light, as he is himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. So, if we're walking in the light, there are two results, right, in the text. What are the two results when we are walking in the light? One, we have fellowship with one another, and then the cleansing from our sin by Jesus' blood. So if you continue to repent and treasure Christ, if you shine light on felt temptations that you feel on a day-to-day -day basis, and you're not walking in isolation, if you continue to profess Jesus' lordship and treasure, and that profession is matching your practice, this results in fellowship with one another. I thought it was strange when I read the text that it doesn't say fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another. Because, I mean, when you look at the logic of the text, shouldn't it say, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God? But it says fellowship with one another. John deliberately writes that light walkers, those who are walking in the light, light walkers, are family members. Those walking in the light are in fellowship with one another. The blood of the Lamb cleanses and purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light can't mean that you are no longer struggling with sin because the word cleanse is a present tense and it connotates an ongoing cleansing and purifying. So saints, isn't it freeing and comforting and encouraging that the blood of the Lamb is cleansing us from all of our sins? Not some. Not some that are bearable by God who is light, but all of our sins are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And that blood 
that cleanses all our sins is thicker than water. The blood that cleanses all our sins is thicker than water. 149 saints of Bethany Baptist Church. I think you do so well chilling and partying it up with different members. We love to laugh at each other. We love to laugh for some of you like hyenas. We love to make fun of each other and all fun. We love to eat together. We love to even take trips together. And I think you saints are party people. But I wonder if you only chill and hang out with those who click with you. Who are in similar seasons as you, who look like you, who talk like you. There's nothing in inherently wrong with that. You shouldn't not chill with those whom you click with. Let's say I have a personality that clicks with Pastor Ben. Just because our personalities click, I shouldn't say, oh, we click. We should not hang out. I should look to somebody else that I don't click with. That's not what I'm saying. But may I remind you and challenge you to enlarge your circle? Because all of the 150 members of BBC have fellowship with God and therefore have fellowship with one another. Blood is thicker than water. We've made a blood pact. If comfortability, laughability, and for lack of a better term, clickability, is your highest goal in relating and hanging out with different members, I want to challenge you. Get to know and deepen your friendship with older saints. They're not gonna bite. Older saints, don't be afraid of hanging out with younger saints. They're not going to bite. Don't be afraid of initiating lunch, dinner, coffee, tea, chess, whatever you want to do. Intermingle because the blood of the Lamb and the covenant that we've made connects us, not comfortability and clickability alone. Christians, Christian guests who are joining us, may I remind you that there is no real fellowship with God which is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. When you say you have fellowship with God, you can't disconnect that with fellowship with the bride. If you are claiming that you have fellowship with God, you need others, namely the local church, to assess, declare, protect your profession continually. So a Christian guest who's joining us, who's looking for a church, who's not part of a church, join a church. You don't have to join this church, but join a gospel preaching church and join a church that's willing to declare that your profession and practice are not lining up. If they aren't, join a church that will love you enough to excommunicate you. So you must examine your walk in order to enjoy your fellowship with God. Is your profession and practice matching? If so, then continue to enjoy your fellowship with the Lord and others. Secondly, you must examine your claims 
so that you may enjoy your fellowship with God. So, second is to examine your claim, which is from verses 8 through 10. There are a total of three claims that we want to zero in on. First claim, look down with me to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Stop there. That's the first claim. That is, we have no sin. If the Father is the absolute light, where there is absolutely no darkness at all, people may be tempted to feel like they're required to be sinless to have fellowship with God. And in a sense, that's correct. You must be sinless to have fellowship with God who is sinless. People in their darkness and sin can't have fellowship with God who has no sin. But Wesleyan perfectionism is unattainable. That is, people can't achieve perfection. Or the state of sinless, sinlessness in this side of the age. And you might be thinking, well, duh, Peter. Peter, I ain't trying to be perfect. I'm just trying to get by, dude. I'm just trying to survive and get through the days and grow in holiness. I'm not trying to be perfect. Yes and amen to that. But the functional and momentary belief of I have no sin is more subtle than you think. In other words, you may functionally believe that you have no sin from time to time, from moment to moment. Saints, we're all swimming in the culture that we're a part of. And the culture that we are part of has an inevitable effect on us, whether we like it or not. For example, when someone sneezes, you say, why do you say that? I have no idea. I looked it up. It did not give me a satisfying answer. Maybe you can find one, but I don't know why I say bless you, so I stopped saying bless you. And some people, when you say bless you, they would say bless you back. Weirdos. But basically, we say it because that's what people do. Culture that we are a part of has a catechism-like effect on us. Some of these are biblically sound or wise, and some, of, some are contrary to what the Bible teaches. An example of counter-biblical, catechism-like culture is the belief that you must look the part. Fake it till you make it. Fake it so that you can save your face. Now, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you would automatically dismiss, dismiss me and dismiss that fact. And you would disagree with the notion because the Bible's teaching is clear that mankind are born with a sinful nature and that our righteousness doesn't originate from us. This is what our church confesses about the nature of man. Article 6 of our BBC confession on the fall of man, it reads, quote, God originally created man male and female, in his own image and free from sin. But through the temptation of Satan, Adam sinned against God and fell from his original innocence. Now here's what I'm trying to talk about here. Whereby his posterity inherits a nature corrupt and wholly opposed to God and his law. As a result, they are under condemnation and as soon as they are capable of, capable of moral action, become actual transgressors, close quote. Our church believes, as historic Christian faith has confessed through the ages, that mankind 
inherited a nature that's corrupt and wholly opposed to God's law. Yet, we act as if we have no sin, often, don't we? We act like we have no sin. Save your face, save your reputation, appear right, look the part. The culture that we're part of catechized us, and it continues to catechize us. This is not to put the entire blame of the culture that we're swimming in, but it is to rightly see the culture that we're swimming in. There is a time and place for looking the part, but often it can lead us to unintentionally unhelpful idealism. Think about it. Let's say you are married and you invite other church guests over and you get into a fight and they walk into your door and they're at the dinner table and you and your spouse are smiling at each other, acting like nothing happened. Act happy, act natural. Maybe you've sinned against the Lord by clicking on what you shouldn't have have. But you're at the church gathering, so act like a Christian. Saints, what does it mean to act like a Christian? Tell me, what does it mean to be a Christian and to act like a Christian? Does it mean that we have no sin? No. It means that... We know that we are sinful. We know that we're born with sinful nature, bent away from God's law, still fighting with our indwelling sin until glorification. But we've bought into this subtle notion that we have no sin. And we are lying through and through. Christians, if you want to appear just appear right before others? A desire to look righteous and declared righteous and godly by others, held in high esteem, you are actually lying to yourself. You have subtly bought into the notion of, I have no sin. And saints, that means truth is not in you and you are lying and God sees it. So what shall we do? Claim number two, look down with me to verse nine. Claim number two. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Claim two is that we do have sin and our need, our need, is outside of us. That's why we confess, and the results are forgiveness and cleansing of all unrighteousness. When you look at the text below in verse nine, we know why God is faithful and righteous to forgive us, right? Why is God faithful? Why is Jesus faithful and righteous to forgive our sins? Shouldn't it say righteous and faithful to condemn us of our sin? Why is he faithful and righteous? Because of whom? Jesus. Yes, Jesus. John's point is that the true condition of our fellowship with God, fellowship with God who is holy, who is light, is not 
our sinlessness, but someone else's sinlessness. The true condition for fellowship with that God is confession of our sins. Friends, if you're not a Christian, God wants you to know how you can truly have fellowship with Him. Actually, God created you so that you may enjoy fellowship with Him. The reason why you are tirelessly and restlessly moving from one thing to another is because you were made for God. Hear this quote from C.S. Lewis. Quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such thing as water. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but to arouse it, to suggest and to point to the real thing. Close quote. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you and I don't need another toy or distraction to save us. All of us actually need saving from God's wrath towards sinners. Yes, He is wrathful, and rightfully so. Contrary to popular opinion, you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. There is none righteous. Not even one. And God who is holy and just and loving can't just overlook your sin. And one day you will have to stand in front of God under His judgment seat. But friends, there is good news. Jesus, the God-man, truly did come 2,000 years ago. He was sinless. And He satisfied God's wrath for sinners like you and I, that if you repent and turn to treasure Christ and Christ alone for salvation, if you turn away from your religiosity and your goodness, your perceived goodness, and you turn away from your idolatry and you turn to treasure Christ, God says, I will forgive you because of Christ. So friends, if you're not a Christian, repent today and turn to treasure and trust in Christ today and receive God's forgiveness. The hole that you have is a God-sized hole that only God can fill. The reason why you have that is by God's grace, so that you might know that something is off and that something being off is the fact that you have no fellowship with God. And you can only have fellowship with God through Jesus, His Son. If you want to know more about this message of Christianity, and if, if you perhaps want to read the Bible to hear all the claims and weigh all the claims of Christianity, please come find me. I'd love to connect you to another Christian member or two to have them read the Bible with you. Saints, Christians, God forgives us in Christ. God cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. 
He does require sinlessness. Being sinless is what is required to be fit for fellowship with them. And yes, Christ's sinlessness has been clothed onto us like the prodigal son. When he came running to the father, or when he is walking, the father runs to him and gives him new sets of clothes and jewelries. In the same way, Christ's sinlessness has been clothed onto us. Kids, look up here. Let me give you a wise counsel here that will save you from a lot of trouble. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. You don't have to become better to become a Christian. You don't have to become better to come to God. Actually, God calls you to come to Him in your sin in your mess. You don't have to clean up your mess to come. Just come to Christ. God calls you to come in your mess. Parents, if you have kids, create a culture where it's safe for your kids to mess up. That's speaking to myself. Create a culture in your home where it's safe for them to mess up. Don't create a community and a culture of performance. That's tiring for you, tiring for the kids, tiring for people who are watching. Create a culture of grace. Make a home where it's safe for kids to spill their milk all the time. I'm speaking for myself. Don't be sinfully angry with your kids when they mess up. Embrace their mistakes and gospelize your kids. Model for your kids. Make a safe place to confess sins. Now, third and last claim to examine is verse 10. Look down with me. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and His Word is not in us. If we claim that we haven't sinned, we make who a liar? We make God a liar. Yes, God is claiming one thing, but you're claiming another. God is claiming and declaring that we have sinned, but we are denying God's claim by stating that we haven't sinned. Acting as if sin is something that's been done away with, especially in the church, is counterintuitive and counter-Bible. The church is and should be a place where sin is most talked about and not abnormal to see people recognizing and repenting of their sin. We need to reverse the popular culture and cultural conception of the church. When people think about the church, they might be thinking, ah, either hypocrites, or goody two-shoes. Saints, healthy church doesn't mean people are repenting less. Healthy church means they're repenting more. They see repenting, repentance more often. So what kind of claims are you making? Do your claims lead you to enjoy fellowship with God? Or do they take your fellowship with God away in a non-ultimate sense. Examine your claims 
so that you may enjoy fellowship with God. Lastly, third thing to examine is examine your view so that you may enjoy fellowship with God. Look down with me to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. I wonder how you view your sin. Two nights ago, one of my kids, who shall be unnamed, threw up on me. Projected all his, hers, his milk that he or she just drank. It was nasty! All over the floor, all over my pants. I had seen and even smelled what this kid has eaten. Broccolis, carrots, with pasta. I can still smell it. I wonder if you view your sin in such a way, going back to your own vomit. I mentioned briefly about the unattainability of perfection, Wesleyan perfectionism. It's clear in the text But to claim that we have no sin and we haven't sinned is deceiving ourselves and making God a liar. So we won't be done away with sin in this side of the age while we're living. But the verse does get at the heart of how we ought to view sin. Christians have the same supreme love and the same supreme abhorrence. We're all called to supremely love and treasure Christ. We're also called to supremely abhor sin. That is to wage war against sin. Holiness is not an option for a Christian. Just as saving faith is not an option for a Christian. You need to walk in the light as He is in the light. God doesn't want you to sin. God is never indifferent towards sin. We must wage war against sin lest we make light of Christ's sacrifice. When we became born again, our holy hatred for sin was also born. They are simultaneous. Sin starts to burden you. What you didn't notice before, you start to notice. And you run away from it. You fight it. You strategize against it. Is that how you view sin? Or do you view sin like a quick advertisement break? Not that important unless it's interesting me at the moment. Do you actively fight against sin? Do you fight off temptations? Or do you just let it happen and wish for the best next time? James. Apostle John has written so that we may not sin. He knows that we're going to sin, but he's writing so that we may not sin. So wage war against it. Don't give an inch. Don't make compromises. Because once you make compromise, sin will come knocking and try to be a master over you. Look down with me to verse, uh, the rest of verse 1 and then 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. 
Is let me be crystal clear. We read from this passage that you are not your own advocate. If Christ's advocacy didn't follow God's summons to not sin, it would have crushed us. We will be an endless strife or endless cycle of strife and failures and strife and failures. Our bentness towards self-justification and self-deception would have restlessly tried to advocate for ourselves through our works. But Christ's advocacy liberates us. It frees us from our strife to make things right. Christ's advocacy speaks louder than our failures. Dave Orland, the author of the book Gentle and Lowly, says this, Christ rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own sufferings and death. Not based on our own merits, but based on Christ's merits and his death. An advocate is one who speaks on behalf of the accused, not in a professional legalistic sense, but as a friend or a patron who speaks up in favor of the accused. One who speaks in our defense, and Christ is speaking in your defense next to the Father. Now why is that comforting? Why is that comforting and sweet? Because the one who is advocating, speaking for us, and standing with us, is not like us. He is the righteous one. Tonight, Ross will be giving a short devotional from 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, the text that Brother Heber read. It describes King Solomon's prayer of dedication for the completion of the temple. After the temple was built, finally, King Solomon prays to the Lord. But as he's praying, he's actually, he's actually asking God for forgiveness for future sins of his people. So in a sense, Solomon, King Solomon, is interceding or advocating for the people of Israel. But the comparison between Solomon's advocacy and to that of Christ's advocacy is night and day difference. Why? Because Christ himself gave himself as the atoning sacrifice. He gave himself as the atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Christ secures the mercy. Solomon is pleading to God, asking for mercy. Christ secures the mercy through his death. The atoning sacrifice of Christ has secured that mercy. In other translations, the word atonement has been translated as propitiation. This is how John Piper defines propitiation. Propitiation is the removal of the wrath of God against sinners by the death of Jesus. The ultimate problem that all human beings face is that God's omnipotent wrath is against it, against them. The ultimate good news is that there is a way to have the wrath of God averted and that God himself has made the way. So propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath by Christ's death. The ground of our security, 
of Christ's advocacy is not our goodness or even our change. But the ground of that security is Christ's advocacy is his atoning work. So brothers and sisters, when you sin against the Lord and you run, you don't run to Christ as quickly as possible, but you are trying to clean yourself up, you actually might be watering down Christ's advocacy. Because functionally what you are saying is Christ dying on the cross and Christ advocating for me is not enough. I need to clean myself up. But how often, after sinning against the Lord, do we run immediately to the cross? But shouldn't we? Shouldn't we run immediately to God through the Son if Christ is advocating for us? The ground of our security in Christ's advocacy is not our transformation, but His atoning sacrifice. Imagine a conversation between God the Father and the Son. God the Father says, look at Peter's sin. And imagine God the Son saying, ah, Peter will change. Father, just wait, he's gonna do better. That's not the conversation between the Father and the Son. The Son will answer the Father by saying, I, died in his place. I died for that sin, Father. Not, he will do better. And Father will say, speak no more. So saints, don't hesitate going to the Father immediately after sinning. Turn and repent immediately. If there's no tears coming out of your, your eyes, it's fine. Turn to the Lord and pray to the Lord immediately after sinning when the Lord has sobered you up. Don't be in danger of watering down the advocacy and the effect of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Now, one point of clarification as we look at verse 2. Look down with me again to verse 2. It says, Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for what? For whom? Those of the whole world. What's that mean? Christ is the atoning sacrifice, not only for Christians, but those of the whole world? Is God a universalist? Well, that can't be the case. Universalism is a heretical error claiming that everyone will eventually be saved. No, God is not claiming himself to be a universalist. There is a clear distinction between God's people and not his people. So the phrase the whole world cannot mean every single human being. This conclusion can also be supported by looking at 1 John chapter 5. So turn a few pages over and look at 1 chapter or 1 John chapter 5 verse 19. The phrase whole world is repeated there again. We know that we are of God. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So compare chapter 5 verse 19 to chapter 2 verse 2. Christ 
giving himself as an atoning sacrifice for the whole world cannot mean every single human being. Because even when we compare it to chapter 5, verse 19, it says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. How can every single human being be under the sway of the evil one and every single human being being receiving the atoning sacrifice? That just doesn't work. So, the phrase whole world is a colloquium for all parts and all regions of the world, every part of the world, not just certain slice. We can't say Christ died savingly for the whole world. In John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus didn't die savingly in the place of every sinner who ever believed God is not a universalist. And praise God that he is not a universalist. Because now Christ advocates for his children. So continue to examine your view of sin and your view after you've sinned. Don't look to yourself to fix yourself to come to God. That's an endless strife that eventually waters down the work of Christ. Keep your view on the advocate. In conclusion, saints, we will continue to wage war against our indwelling sin. And you and I sometimes will feel discouraged, burdened, frustrated by our sins. You might be asking yourself, Peter, how often will I fail again and again to walk in the light? I feel the crushing weight of my sins, the weight of my failures, feeling like you're always behind and trying to catch up, but you're falling behind again and again, failing in multiple different areas. Saints, our fellowship with God, who is light, will be enjoyed and reassured when you examine your walk, when you examine your claims, and when you examine your views. Christ, the righteous one, who gave himself as, as the atoning sacrifice on the cross, he defeated sin, death, and Satan, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. So saints, enjoy your fellowship with the Father, with God, and with others. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to enjoy the fellowship that we have with you, who is absolutely light, where there is no darkness at all. But we can always enjoy that fellowship that we have with you, not because of our own cleanliness or purification, but alien righteousness, because of alien perfection. And we have the Son advocating for us, on behalf of us, defending us next to you. Father, thank you for giving us your Son. And we pray that you would edify the congregation here to think about and to feel the sweetness and the glories of Christ in his advocacy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're new here, uh, we do have a certain tradition of sharing takeaways with a neighbor. If you're an introvert, feel free to just sit in on the conversation and not feel the pressure to share. 
But if you're a member of BBC, look around and see if you have a neighbor near you who's um, alone. So let's take about two to three minutes to share our takeaways with a neighbor around you. And then we'll come together and take the Lord's Supper together.